From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. You know, I'd, I'd been doing 3D printing in high school and then, you know, a little bit in college here and there, more so like just plastic stuff. And uh, I would say how I got reintroduced into and what I guess or introduced to added manufacturing instead of 3D printing was I had the opportunity to do a summer internship at the Alcoa Technical Center, uh, ATC in, in Pittsburgh. And they had a an M270 machine, and I uh, had the opportunity to get involved with some projects there. And uh, I was like, "Wow, this is this is really cool technology, and it's really going to change the way we make things." That was Jacob Rindler. Jacob is the lead additive manufacturing engineer at the Ohio State University's Center for Design and Manufacturing Excellence. Before joining the Ohio State team, Jacob developed AM and advanced metals technology at both Northrop Grumman and Boeing Research and Technology. Jacob attended the Ohio State University, where he holds a bachelor's degree in welding engineering. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for joining the show today. Um, why don't we just start kind of from the beginning with your career? Kind of, was there something that drew you into engineering, manufacturing early on as you were thinking about your academic and career path? Oh, hi, Mike, and, and thanks for having me on today. Uh, yeah, I would say, you know, in high school, I actually had the opportunity to take part in a uh, pre-engineering curriculum at my at my high school uh, called Project Lead the Way, and, you know, they gave us introductory to, you know, CAD and AutoCAD and being a lifelong, you know, childhood fan of Legos, it started just kind of building off of that and uh, really moved into more advanced classes. We even did some stuff with like CAM and, you know, doing some CNC programming and some digital electronics. And I just kind of really ate it up and went with it. And um, actually come my senior year, we had a capstone project working with a local manufacturer to develop some automation for some of their processes. And uh, this is actually where I got my start in 3D printing. Uh, we started printing some robotic end effector tooling. This was back in 2010. Uh, so some state grants enabled us to get a, a FDM printer and when they're still you know, very expensive. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I got my start in 3D printing. And when it came time to pick a university, uh, yeah, Ohio State was a big draw, and I decided to keep moving forward with my engineering education at the university level. So, and was uh, there ever a, a particular industry that excited you, or kind of seeing kind of some of the applications that you were hands-on with that that particularly drew your interest? So, I grew up on a farm, actually, and my initial thought was I wanted to be in the agricultural industry and. Uh, so I started off in agricultural and biological engineering as my major. And I thought, you know, I, you know, growing up being on, uh, being on the farm, I was like, oh yeah, like, I don't know, I'll figure out how to design better tractors and put my, you know, hands-on knowledge to use to design better implements or, um, better ways of, you know, doing things in the agricultural field. Um, a couple of years into school, I, 
I guess I kind of, uh, you know, as people do in university, they open their eyes to other opportunities and things like that. And uh, uh, that's kind of how I got into welding engineering and, and materials and metallurgy. So uh, that's kind of the progression there. Yeah. And so was welding and engineer, welding engineering a degree? Was that kind of the, the official degree that? Yes, actually. So Ohio State is one of like uh, just a handful of schools that have a degree in welding engineering. Uh, we're like the only quote unquote ABET accredited. Uh, some of the others are more welding technology degrees. Um, but uh, yeah, us and, and uh, Cranfield University, I think has a welding engineering program, Cranfield in the United, United Kingdom. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, you know, it seems very specialized, but, uh, you know, looking back, it's, uh, it's kind of an amalgamation uh, of mechanical material science and some electrical aspects really focused on not even just welding, but joining in general. And so how did 3D printing play into that at the time? I mean, this is kind of what you said, you know, 2010, 2015 timeframe, right? And so like DMLS had been invented, like there are some machines. Was there any talk of that in the curriculum or was that something that you kind of actually onto in other ways? Not really. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I've been doing 3D printing in high school and then, you know, a little bit in college here and there, more so like just plastic <laughs> stuff. And uh, I would say how I got reintroduced into and what I guess or introduced to added manufacturing instead of 3D printing was I had the opportunity to do a summer internship at the Alcoa Technical Center, uh, ATC in, in Pittsburgh. And they had uh, an M270 machine and I uh, had the opportunity to get involved with some projects there. And uh, I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool technology and it's really gonna change the way we make things. Um, that and it's kind of really starting to take off. And I quickly realized, I was like, oh, you know, like when the people invented castings and they, you know, turned that into a more viable production process and like foragings and things like that. Um, you know, this is an opportunity to really get in on like building something that's going to be used every day. People are going to look back on it and be like, Oh, I wonder how they came up with all these rules and, and this knowledge. And so that's kind of what drew me to, you know, keep pursuing it. And I imagine too, like people recruiting for, jobs and running m290s or renishaw systems or slm system you get a resume with someone that has like a welding engineering degree like like you hit the jackpot right because you got the material science mechanics electronics and um and so what and even that first job is kind of at the alcoa tech center what was the like what were some of the skills that you kind of gained in that first experience in terms of learning about the technology were you running machines uh, as well as kind of kind of being around the space no so I, I didn't really get a chance to to run the machines too much i think you know at the time there's still a lot of you know unknowns as far as how to you know do health and safety with handling mm -hmm. powder and things like that and so you know i didn't get an opportunity to be hands-on with the machine as much but i would say some of my initial starts were more so on more, I guess, you know, manufacturing maturities type of things. Well, it was a mix. So uh, some of it was, let's look at and understand 
um, you know, what happens to the parts as they go through heat treatment cycles. So uh, a lot of CMM measurements and, and analyzing it um, to see how, you know, residual stress relief, you know, um, you know, turns into, you know, displacement of different datums on uh, some of the parts they're looking at, which I, yeah, I probably can't talk about too much. Um, but, uh, and then the other side of it was I got to work with, uh, uh, on sort of more of the processing side with, uh, with modeling actually. And so we were running some, some thermal models to look at, uh, you know, how can you efficiently, uh, model the residual stress buildup as the part gets built, uh, to try and predict some of that distortion and how it might build up during the build process and then be relieved. Um, so that was, I kind of got to do maybe a little bit of full life cycle of, you know, some predictive as well as, you know, actual experimental, actually validation for those, uh, for those predictions, which was a lot of fun. And was this an, remind me again, was this an internship that you were doing or? Yeah, this was an internship. So, uh, over the summer and May through August, 2014. Okay. And how did that experience influence you going back to school and thinking about kind of what what was next for you as either the next summer or kind of a further career path that kind of say like hey like this added manufacturing stuff might like there might actually be a career here other than just being an engineer who uses the technology yeah so first thing i did was i started talking to some of the professors and said hey uh i really enjoyed working with technology uh who's working on it and uh, got linked up with uh, Professor Zong uh, and one of his grad students, uh, Hei Yoon Song, uh, who I think is now at EWI, but they were doing some, some work in the lab um, on a research program looking at um, building Econel 718 and DMLS systems supported versus unsupported and seeing how the cooling rates were affected, uh, the material properties, microstructure, and so I started helping them in the lab uh, and uh, to get some more experience. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, definitely balancing that with like my senior year of, uh, of college and senioritis was, uh, you know, a bit challenging at times, but it was really great experience and uh, set me up for kind of my next steps uh, after graduation, um, where I was really looking at trying to find a role to continue uh, this newfound passion. So one of the things we we rarely get into on these podcasts is, is like like the actual mechanics of like find, finding a job in after graduation. So like, can you like step through that? Like, were you did you have like link ups from your internship or your professor, or were you throwing out resumes? Like, what? Tell us a, a little bit about what. How did you get that that first job after graduation? Yeah, so I, I will say I, I was pretty spoiled. Um, the welding engineering program, it's like I said, it's pretty unique uh, in that there's not many, many graduates. And so um, there's there were a lot of jobs. Um, so I think I, uh, I applied, you know, with my resume to either some folks who came in for like info sessions, because there's actually a number, I would say each year we maybe get like eight to 10 individual recruiting sessions, not just for Ohio State Engineering, but Ohio State Welding Engineering, they come in specifically to recruit from our program. Um, and so I had met some folks through that uh, and, you know, went on to apply for jobs and, you know, um, 
had a number of interviews and I was really lucky to, you know, get a, a fair, actually a few offers. Uh, and then also applying, you know, through just putting my resume out there. Um, and so I think, you know, I interviewed with probably six or seven different companies and uh, I was very fortunate that the job market was great. And I think I, you know, had six offers uh, and, uh, and, turns out the actual last job I applied for was, uh, was Boeing. And it was like pretty much like a month or so before I graduated or two months before I graduated. Um, and, uh, so I ended up yeah, getting an interview with Boeing and they're growing their research and technology team in the metals area. And, uh, I guess I, uh, ticked a lot of the boxes as far as additive, as well as joining. And, um, and so that was, uh, yeah, that was the offer I ended up taking um, to go work there. I know Boeing's always somewhat secretive in some of the stuff they're doing, but can you tell us at a high level, like what what sort of work at, was was kind of Boeing going after? Obviously, aerospace, but like theoretically, what what were some of the objectives they were trying to hit with with additive? Yeah, so uh, well, I guess actually it's interesting. The first few months, I didn't even touch anything additive, even though that was kind of the agreement for what I uh, kind of said signed on for, but it, it turns out there was a, 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 you know, kind of a fire to be put out on the manufacturing side. And I really, I got really deeply involved with some uh, super plastic forming diffusion bonding processes um, up in, up in the Seattle area. And it was, that was a really cool program. Uh, but yeah, after, you know, after like four months of kind of putting that fire out uh, with the team, I, uh, I started getting into additive more. Um, really, I would say what that looked like was um, it was just really starting to get picking up a lot of steam. They had been working in the technology for a number of years, um, had actually even flown uh, parts, um, not only from a plastic standpoint, but also a or polymer standpoint, but also the metal side. It, but it you know, had a number of programs here and there. Uh, and then now they're looking at it more deeply of how they can pervasively uh, get it, uh, get the technology implemented across their business units. And so I got, uh, I had the opportunity to, to lead one part of a, a Pathfinder project, so-called, where it was, hey, we're going to pick a technology, we're going to pick a part, and we're going to figure out what it, what it actually takes to get this part built, certified, build a supply chain, build some specs. Um, and so that's sort of what I got, um, I got tasked with and it, it was a lot of fun, uh, working with, uh, you know, being pretty new out of school and, uh, learning all about aerospace qualification and certification and the hurdles, uh, involved with that, um, you know, from a, not only internal, but also FAA. Um, and I got to you know, work a lot with electron beam melting. Um, so RKM powder bed process, and uh, yeah, so it was kind of got to do the full, you know, full, full, full life cycle of looking at parts and use cases and uh, meeting with, you know, the actual product teams and saying, you know, hey, what are the requirements for this part? You know, where additive stands, stands today doesn't make sense. Um, you know, maybe a little bit less on the, on the business case side, because this was really a technology push, um, but really, you know, trying to figure out where, where where's additives home uh, at, at the Boeing company. 
And so that was a, that was a lot of fun. And with that, I mean, like theoretically you, you find a part, you find an application. Was it the consensus that you, you kind of mentioned building a supply chain? Was it the idea that Boeing's not going to buy, say this is successful, they're not going to buy a hundred RCAMs to build all these parts internally, right? They need to vet some series of vendors outside of that network of their own kind of uh, doors to do that. So was, was that kind of the case or like, cause that seems even today, like pretty immature, right? Like even if you find a part, right. <laughs> how many places can you go to, to go get it manufactured? Absolutely. And believe me, those were, those were the discussions. Um, you know, the aerospace primes have traditionally gone through cycles of make versus buy, um, you know, depending upon the, uh, the business environment of the day and, you know, uh, you know, what the executive team decides of, you know, vertical integration versus, you know, a diverse supply chain. Um, you know, those were, those were discussions being had of, of whether this technology lived at Boeing or if it lived in the supply chain more so. Um, and uh, yeah, so at the time, I think it was more so um, definitely looking at the supply supply chain. And so I got to meet a lot of great folks also working in additive, um, you know, at, you know, at service bureaus and, or even, you know, some of the tier ones who are starting to dive deep into it. Uh, and, you know, working, working on these technology development roadmaps with them and understanding, you know, one, and they, they have printers in house, right. And understanding, you know, learning, trying to learn the technology from them as well. Um, because uh, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the learning happens, you know, actually putting the building putting the build files onto the machine and pulling out scrap parts and learn how to fix it, right? Um, so yeah, that was kind of at the time it was like I said a lot of the supply chain, but uh, those discussions oh. were still happening, right? And now I think uh, here in 2019 or whatever, Boeing Atom Manufacturing is. Uh, is alive and well where they you know, are producing things uh, internally for the Boeing company with their own machines. So obviously since I left, uh, there was some, uh, you know, further decision-making of bringing the technology more in-house. Right? And so what was the step after Boeing and, and kind of maybe fill in the blanks? Cause right now I'm talking to you from Ohio state. Um, yeah. So what, what was the, the next steps? Yeah. So I, I, uh, I uh, left Boeing and, and went to Northrop Grumman's uh, manufacturing technology team. So um, this was embedded with one of their, with their aerospace unit, um, business units. So versus my role at Boeing, I was in sort of this corporate technology uh, group where, you know, we supported each of the business units who made the products, whether it was BCA or BDS. Um, and so, the, you know, that was always kind of interesting because, you're sort of a little bit on the outside kind of looking in sometimes um, and trying to anticipate their technology needs versus being attached to the, the aerospace business sector was, uh, you know, we were a little bit deeper embedded and, and able to, you know, gain more traction with some of the programs sometimes, uh, which was nice. And, uh, but yeah, that role, it was, uh, yeah, I, kind of moved from being supporting advanced joining is and, and forming projects as well to 
uh, you know, living, breathing, sleeping additive every day. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a great, it was a lot of fun. Uh, really enjoyed, you know, working with that team. I, you know, worked with some great engineers and really some of the coolest products, uh, uh, you know, out there. So that was, that was great. Um, I got exposed to more technologies and, and more building supply chains and developing material allowables and understanding, uh, you know, certification approaches for more on the military side instead of the commercial aircraft side, uh, which is, is actually, you know, fairly different. Um, and, uh, you know, the governing bodies and the regulatory bodies are obviously different. And so is the, you know, the product profile itself of what, uh, you know, where does the value really lie as well as, you know, part counts in general too are a lot different. So, um, you know, it was a great experience, you know, seeing more of the defense side of, of, uh, of uh, the aerospace manufacturing industry. So what's the big difference? If you're a defense, you can give a blank check and then it doesn't, doesn't matter as much. No, not at all. Um, you know, it's, it's just from the biggest difference I would say is one is like, um, part counts. And then also, you know, the, The overall, um, and maybe the commercial side of it, there's a little bit less, uh, you know, cost out initiatives as much, but um, also just like risk tolerance for the mission. Um, and the FAA has a very fundamentally different um, mission than, you know, the DOD, right? So there's, yeah, the qualification approaches are just, you know, kind of, they're just different. Um, yeah, if I had to put my finger on one thing, it, it, it'd be difficult to do. And so what, so explain what you're doing now. What are you, what are you doing at Ohio State? Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, about, I guess, two and a half years now, I, I left Northrop and came to Ohio State as an um, ad manufacturing engineer. And uh, really, you know, that's my title. I, I would say researcher, you know, however you want to look at it. It's, you are definitely on uh, doing applied research. And, um, yeah, I would say my job has definitely changed a lot, uh, working in, uh, versus working in a large, uh, corporate, uh, large corporation where you have a really deep bench of, uh, you know, collaborators, right. Who are all aligned with the same mission. Um, versus being here at the university, we're definitely still a team, but especially where I work, the Center for Design Manufacturing Excellence, it's you know a much smaller team, and uh, everybody also has sort of their own programs and projects they're working on, which are supporting a lot of different external customers, so going in a lot of different directions. Um, and so it's definitely more of an entrepreneurial environment, I would say. Um, and uh, you know, it's you have to. Here it's a lot of the if, if if things are going to move it's you pushing them and you don't uh, you know um, it's not as much of a you know five six person team moving things forward it's definitely you know you and maybe a couple other folks really pushing things forward uh, more or less you know kind of on your own um, which is like I said it's very entrepreneurial and and you know for folks. Um, you know, like myself, you know, I thrive on it where, you know, not only do I get a, um, 
not only do I get a, you know, steer the ship, but I also get a, you know, go downstairs and, and shovel the coal into the fires. Right. Um, if, uh, you know, that analogy works. Um, so, so yeah, it's uh, a lot of hands-on and ownership. And for, what's kind of the, the, the main mission there of, of the additive manufacturing kind of as a group or agglomeration at, at Ohio state, is it really to serve students? Do you do a lot of commercial work with industry kind of research grants, all of the above? Is there kind of a cohesive, cohesive thesis that, um, or body that kind of is centered around additive or is it kind of pockets here and there? And maybe there's overlap when there's overlap. Yes. I think overarchingly, you know, the mission is to, you know, grow, um, you know, grow manufacturing here, you know, domestically and across the world and mature it. Um, now what that embodies or what shape it takes on is, you know, sometimes a little bit different for different folks. Um, but I can say CDME being a little bit outside an academic unit, um, we definitely, you know, support faculty who, you know, their mission is a little bit, you know, different than ours from they um, maybe are a little bit more focused on basic science, uh, as well as, you know, supporting graduate student education. Uh, and, you know, of course, instructing, you know, undergrads. Our mission uh, more so is, I would say, focused on, uh, you know, partnering with industry to help them, uh, you know, grow these technologies from, you know, basic science to something that they can, you know, take a hold, take hold of and bring into their own uh, manufacturing processes. And then with that um, comes the aspect of, you know, developing undergraduate talent, um, you know, to, to feed those, you know, companies, you know, their future employees. Uh, and so we found a really great, um, you know, sort of, say you know, a terrible word like synergy, but uh, we found symbiosis maybe. Uh, and, you know, not only are they looking to mature these technologies, but they also need, you know, the future talent for it. So we've kind of married those two together to do our research programs instead of with, uh, you know, the future PhDs and master's uh, students, but more so with undergraduate students. So it's kind of year round uh, capstone projects almost except, uh, you know, some of these projects, they don't live and die uh, within a semester's time, you know, co coincide with graduation. We are constantly high, we might have one project last for two years and we're constantly cycling students in and out of it as they, you know, mature through the university uh, and they're getting hands-on education, uh, not only, you know, from the classroom standpoint, but also this is what, you know, this is what an industry project looks like. And this is what it feels like. And this is what it tastes like. And this is exactly what you're going to be doing, you know, once you graduate. So I think there's been a lot of value in that. And I'll be honest, if you would have asked me what, when I left uh, Northrop Grumman and was like, oh, why are you going to Ohio State? I probably would have told you, well, I want to work, you know, I want to be hands-on uh, with my research and I want to, you know, lead my own research. Uh, it never would have dawned on me that the best part would have been working with undergraduate students and helping them develop the skills to go out and get jobs and internships in industry, um, which is by far the best part, you know, whether it's 
like I said, my students go and get internships or them, you know, graduating and getting a job and be like, hey, Jacob, I'm working here now. Uh, you know, thanks for the help, uh, uh, you know, learning a few things along the way at Ohio State. So I'd say that's been great. And what in your most successful students or your students that are doing well, like, is there a common factor that helps them engage with companies successfully or engage with these projects in, in a way that is beneficial, both certainly for themselves, but also for the, the companies? Yeah, definitely. Uh, willingness to ask questions and willingness to try uh, without giving up. <clears throat> You know, I think the folks who, you know, really lean into a, a problem and try and, you know, take it on, own it and, you know, work on it without maybe throwing their hands up and asking questions about it right away are definitely, uh, they, uh, they do really well. Uh, uh, and they really develop a lot of skills and independent thought and thinking that way. Um, that's uh, uh, you know, serves them in their future careers. And I think, uh, and that's maybe, uh, maybe it's even less of teaching them necessarily hands-on skills, like, hey, this is how you run a tensile tester. Or this is how you do metallography. I think that's one of the skills that I try to pass on uh, the most uh, to the students and get them to really, uh, you know, learn as they're working here and, and working on the team. So uh, I think... That's probably the biggest skills. And how do you teach those students that may not have that ability? Maybe some are introverted, some haven't worked, haven't been in an, a work environment, so to speak. Is there some things that you've seen people grow their skill set in that may not come, that may not come naturally to, to some people? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, probably for me, the biggest... Um, the biggest part of that is one, not everybody's the same. And so you really need to like personalize it, I guess, and really try and, you know, communicate with that person to try and understand what is it exactly that they don't understand or, um, and a lot of it is, I think even the most powerful thing is self-reflection and like understanding, like think of it more like, what am I doing? Like, why, how can I change my communication to help them. Um, and like, that's been definitely the most useful is like self-reflecting and like, it's probably not the fact that they can't do it or understand it. It's really, I need to present it in a way that clicks with them. And like, I do this the same way. And I'm, you know, I didn't mention before, but I'm also a PhD student right now here. Uh, you know, one of the best ways that I've found to learn is, you know, I use YouTube all the time. And even if my, my professor that I'm taking a course with maybe didn't explain in a way that clicked, if I watch five other lectures and hear the same thing explained five different ways, uh, chances are one of those is going to click with me. And so that's how I kind of try and approach it too is, yeah, it's like I said, it's not that the problem is too hard for them. It's explaining the problem in a way that helps them uh, click in their way of thinking. Yeah. And on the flip side, are do you see companies who engage with you for maybe a couple of different projects get better at the process of either selecting students or working with students or engaging people within the, the added manufacturing space? 
Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, because in a way, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, like picking something off the shelf. If there's 10 options and you try all 10 options at a store <laughs> before you, uh, uh, before you buy one, chances are you're going to get the best one that you want. Right. And so, you know, these companies working with us, they get to see, you know, 10 different students or something like that, not to boil students down to commodities or anything like that. That's probably, you know, I'll probably get a uh, for it later. I don't know, but, but uh, uh, you know, they, you get to see what you like and you get to see what works well for you and which personalities and which, you know, skill sets and things like that and backgrounds, because these are multidisciplinary teams. And, you know, maybe somebody said, oh, I need a Mechie for this problem. And then they look at the problem and we work on the problem together. And it turns out, you know, no, it was actually uh, somebody with a data analytics background actually helped them the most. Um, and so I think that's one of the biggest value propositions too, is uh, it's a little bit of a try before you buy kind of, uh, sure. uh, you know, approach. Yeah. And what's kind of been the, the uptake of, of people kind of continuing on with some of these companies or continuing on in, in the additive space, like kind of once they get, um, see some of the manufacturing, like are, are people sticking with it? With it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you have, and it's, um, you know, part of it is, you know, I've been here two and a half years. Some of this is, you know, a little bit of a long lead cycle. Sure. Past year has obviously been uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty wild. And then at the same time, you know, these folks are also uh, individuals and a lot of times, you know, it comes down to, you know, geographic type of things, right. When they're picking on, you know, careers or future jobs. So uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have uh, many former students who have gone into additive careers yet. Um, but, you know, like I said, there's uh, it's, uh, only hopefully only going to grow. And so what's, what's your PhD on? Can you give uh, us a preview? Welding engineering uh, yeah. is the, is the degree. And uh, yeah, my research. So I just, uh, I actually just uh, defended or, or took my candidacy exam a couple of weeks ago and uh, passed that thankfully. And uh, so I'm very excited to have that off my plate. Um, and my thesis uh, is going to be primarily focused on looking at what happens in multi-laser atom manufacturing and, looking at the stitching uh, for different alloys and understanding how can you develop better strategies for, for stitching together large parts where you can, you know, make sure you maintain isotropic properties. And, uh, Cause I think the last thing anybody wants is to have it act like a, you know, act like a welded joint where you have to take a knockdown, you know, from having, you know, say a stitched region. Uh, that's the last thing we want. Right. And so, we really need to do the work to understand how can we maintain integrity of that. Um, and, or if it is a slightly different from a material standpoint, how can we, you know, accommodate that? So the idea, if you have a four, 16, 140 laser system, <laughs> you can have some uniformity or at least some understanding of, of what's, what your part properties will, will be based on the scan settings and things like that. That and, and the other part of it too is really, I think people in the additive community, they like to forget that there's uh, 
you know, or, or especially maybe folks who don't run the machines every day is they like to forget that there's a machine that is delivering a laser to their powder. Um, and the whole mechanisms behind delivering that laser to the powder is actually pretty complex. And there's, you know, components of the machine that get larger or change over time, uh, especially as they get warm. And so understanding in that cycles, right, as, uh, you know, the build is happening and or uh, after the builds and you start rebuilds. And so digging into understanding what aspects of a machine and, and the optical train and optical components and the machine itself uh, are going to help you get maintainable, repeatable quality. Um, and so that's been uh, a lot of fun for me is trying to dig into that as more of a, as more of a metallurgist going back to, you know, the lasers and the scanners and the optical bench itself and, and understanding, you know, why are we seeing laser misalignment? If my lasers are going to be misaligned, how can I accommodate for that in the process uh, to maintain integrity? So, um, which has been a lot of fun. And what's your general thought on kind of the push for more lasers in the industry? It seems like that seem if you want to go faster, or get bigger, that's kind of like specific, like DMLS systems, right? Like, um, but in the last year we've seen 12 or 16, I can't remember, remember the number systems um, from some companies, but some companies just want to focus on, Hey, we're going to do one laser very well, or up to four lasers very well, and just make sure our machines are like dialed in. And so you buy one, one machine and it's going to act like the, the one before it. So do you have any, any thoughts on kind of all the experience you had of like, what's a general consensus that people are, are looking at when, when they talk to you or do projects with your students or Ohio state? Yeah. So, um, you know, to a certain extent, the, the benefits that you're going to get from putting more lasers into a, into one area is, you know, capped, um, right. And you still, and then, you know, the other side of it is recoat time. And so, you know, I feel like there's still a lot of room for optimization of recoating the powder bed. And you see, you know, folks, I forget, maybe the, the machine maker out of Australia that's doing like continuous recoating as, you know, the part is being built and, and the lasers never turn off. I think that's a, you know, a really cool concept to, you know, increase the, the profitability and productivity of the AM. Um, and then, and then, you know, folks like, you know, Surat, who is, you know, introducing like tile printing for AM and really reducing the amount of, you know, uh, you know, time for the printing layer. So, you know, when I think of, if I say, you know, what the opportunity spaces are, you know, definitely adding more lasers is helping and, and creating and allowing you to create bigger parts, right? Because your laser scan field can only be really so large uh, for a single laser. And so at some point you'll need to move them out uh, or, you know, put them on like a gantry system, like the GE Atlas system. Um, so there's definitely, you know, and there's in, in our, you know, current configuration, you know, whether or not the 12 lasers is the maximum, like SLM, you know, figured out and said, yes, 12 lasers is like the maximum we'll get from benefit from, you know, having this machine. You know, I, I would say that's probably close to it. Um, you know, when we talk about single mode gassing beams and, uh, and there's, but there's a lot of other opportunities to make the process go faster. We're talking about 
uh, layer thickness. You know, SLM, I think, has done a lot of work in looking at printing 30, 50, 90 micron layers um, and understanding, you know, can we just do, can we use that to increase our productivity, uh, which I think is great and deserves more attention as well. Um, and, you know, then you all have to start talking about surface finish and then finishing comes into play. You know, but I definitely think there's a lot of room, uh, you know, runway left to increase productivity and make, you know, added manufacturing, you know, cheaper and more affordable. Um, and I kind of just spend, uh, you know, rambling on some of my thoughts there, but uh, yeah, definitely. And then some of the things that, you know, I'm also interested in is, can we use multiple lasers together to do really interesting things from a material science standpoint? Um, so pretty soon we'll be having a, a new machine come in that is uh, more suited to having, you know, dual lasers operating in tandem with each other. Um, and really excited to you know, start working on that uh, to see, you know, are there opportunity spaces and, uh, you know, alloys that have poor weldability um, to, you know, use multiple lasers to that or tailor microstructure and control solidification and control the temperature gradient. Uh, or, you know, some folks are even looking at residual stress relief in situ. So uh, multiple lasers doesn't just have to be more productivity. You know, there's, there's other opportunities, I think, for it as well. For sure. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining the show today. It was a really good conversation and uh, look forward to, to seeing the results of, of some of your research and, and what your students are doing as well. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for having me on and you know, enjoyed, uh, I guess, uh, more of a one-way chat for me, but uh, you know, really always happy to talk at it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much. Absolutely. Take care.